Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 949. To begin this week's show, David Lorla is welcomed by Drew Saylor, hitting coordinator for the Kansas City Royals. David asks Drew about beginning his new position with the challenging 2020 season, and how the Royals have improved their use of analytics and technology in recent years. We also hear about a number of promising prospects in the system, including MJ Melendez, Nick Prado, Nathan Eaton, and of course, Bobby Witt Jr., he works incredibly hard at his craft. He's one of the the guys that just, again, like when you think and you try to build a player in terms of just physical tools, mental tools, emotional EQ and IQ, like he, he is probably the, the player that you would build on MLB The Show. That, that's the type of special that we have with Bobby. After that, Eric Longenhagen is joined by roster resource guru Jason Martinez to preview the 40-man roster deadline, which is the same day this podcast comes out. Eric and Jason look around the league at a number of teams who have prospects who may need to be added to 40-man rosters to protect them from the Rule 5 draft this winter, which also means a number of players are going to get designated for assignment to make room. There's certain teams which we'll discuss right now which have a lot of interesting guys to add and not that many spots, which is how you end up after this Friday. A whole bunch of fun, interesting analysis on who are going to be the top picks in the Rule 5 draft, who's the next Akil Badu, Who's the next Garrett Whitlock? You know Tyler Wells. You got a couple yep. pretty good, a couple pretty good success stories this year. But before we get to these segments, I must offer my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangrass.com shop. We have great merch as well as ad-free memberships, which are the best way to both browse and support the site, helping us keep doing everything we do. Thank you. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Drew Saylor, hitting coordinator for the Kansas City Royals. Drew, thanks for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Looking forward to having our discussion today. I think we're going to have a great conversation, and we're certainly going to talk hitting. We are going to talk about some of the notable prospects in the Royal system. But we should actually start a little bit with your background. You were hired by the Royals, I believe, in January 2020. What preceded the hiring? Actually, I was hired in October, almost November. No, it was, it was October 2019. So I got something wrong right off the bat. <laughs> we're off to a bad start. <laughs> no, it's it's all good. Yeah, I was hired in, in October 2019. Prior to that, I was with uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. I was the assistant hitting coordinator and also manager of the now uh, defunct New York Penn League, uh, West Virginia Black Bears. Uh, Black Bears still live on as the uh, draft league, but uh, obviously with uh, minor league consolidation, uh, that job does not exist anymore. Uh, before that, I was with the Los Angeles Dodgers for three years. Uh, I was the manager of the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes. Uh, we were the 2018 Cal League champions. And then before that, I was with the Colorado Rockies for four years, uh, where I was a manager for two years with the Tri-City Dust Devils. Uh, one year, I was a hitting coach with the Modesto Nuts, which was my last year. And then my very first job in professional baseball, I was the hitting coach of the Grand Junction Rockies, the now defunct uh, affiliated Pioneer League uh, that's now an independent league team. So that's my uh, that's my coaching lineage uh, in professional baseball. And you started coaching pretty young. I think you were barely 30. Is that correct? Or were you still in your 20s? I was still in my 20s. Um, my first year in affiliated ball, I was 28. Um, I also had two years where I was a volunteer assistant at Cleveland State University uh, and also at the University of Akron uh, prior to that. So, yeah, I was on, on the younger side for sure. 
Yes, and you are an, an Ohio guy, which being a Michigan guy, I guess I can cut you a little bit of slack on that, as long as we don't talk college football here. Hey, it's it, it's it's okay. It, it's been a little bit uh, since you guys ended up beating uh, the Ohio State University. Uh, actually, sidebar, uh, our uh, director of minor league operations, Mitch Meyer, uh, is a uh, Vet Team Up North fan, and he has given myself and my wife tickets to the game. And he said that he wants me to go to watch that team up north beat the Ohio State University. So we will see. We will see uh, what will happen here in a couple Saturdays. Yeah, Mitch, if you happen to be listening to this pod, hey, you and I are both going to really enjoy that. You know, it will happen in our lifetime, I guess. It's, it's been pretty grim lately. But no, back, back to baseball. Uh, Drew, before you got into coaching, you, of course, were a player. You played, I believe it was five years of pro ball, uh, three of them in indie ball. I happen to notice that you had you hit one home run in affiliated ball. I think you need to tell us about that. Yeah, it was in Jamestown, New York. That was the short season affiliates of the Florida Marlins, now the Miami Marlins uh, with the name change. Um, I don't remember who it was against. I do remember the home run. It was hitting the left center field. I remember my mom and dad uh, were there. My aunt and uncle uh, were also there and a couple of cousins. So it's only being about three and a half hours away from home. Uh, they got a chance to see us uh, play. So uh, a really special moment to be able to you know, hit a home run uh, and have family there to be able to see it, especially you know, your first and unfortunately only professional home run. So it, it's definitely a memory that, that's back in the ethers of my mind uh, that, that I'll recall from time to time. Yeah, it is not uncommon, Drew, uh, for a short season team to have one or even no players make it to the big leagues. You happen to be on a Jamestown team that had, I think, a good half dozen, and that included uh, Logan Morrison and, and Chris Coughlin. Uh, those guys had pretty good careers. Oh, tremendous careers. Uh, and really, first and foremost, just great people. Uh, what, what tremendous teammates they were. Um, you know, even looking back uh, just on that year, uh, Lomo came up. I think it was halfway through, uh, he was in the Gulf Coast League and, and helped support our team as we were trying to, you know, compete. And we were racing near the end, I think, um, uh, try to get into the postseason in the in the Pickney division um, at that time. And, and Chris just was a, an, another, you know, type of talented player. Uh, really good bat-to-ball skills, had power. You could tell that there was, you know, real good feel for, you know, being in the, in the skin in the infield. And, you know, especially as he went up, and I believe he was Rookie of the Year in 08, I think, maybe. But just, again, being able to see those guys have just their long, uh, really successful careers, it, it wasn't a surprise. As one of those ones as a guy like myself being a, a 13th-round pick and, 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 you know, for all intent and purposes, I was a guy that was just an organizational filler. Uh, you could definitely tell those guys were cut from a different cloth. Uh, from the rest of us mortal uh, mortal men, uh, but again, just that, that 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 year was awesome. I mean, you know, you look at just our staff. You know, we had Bo Porter as our manager, uh, Anthony Iposi uh, was our hitting coach that time. Uh, just again, a lot of those guys that were there uh, went on to have really you know some good major league careers. But even off of that, you know, Hunter Mens is the hitting coordinator of the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Guillermo Martinez uh, is the major league coach with the Blue Jays. Uh, just again, like. Just looking back at just that first year, like outside of obviously, you know, having six guys off your short season team make it to the big leagues, uh, just how many of those guys are still uh, impacting the game, guys that that we still stay in touch with one another. It just it's a really cool you know year to look back on. You mentioned being a 13th round pick. You were drafted by the Marlins, uh, 395 fifth overall. Do you happen to recall who was taken one pick in front of you? 
Yeah, I, I, I shared it off air, but I'll I'll let uh, I'll let you drop the uh, the bomb on that one. <laughs> yeah, we did share this off the air, and uh, you did not get it actually. <laughs> Full disclosure: it was actually Daniel Murphy took the Mets one pick before you were taken by the Marlins, and I just think that is really fitting here because Daniel Murphy is probably just as much of a hitting nerd as you are. Oh yeah, I mean, I've I've read all the articles uh, and just kind of you know his thoughts just on on hitting and just the different swing types based on pitch shapes and uh, yeah, he's definitely a guy that you know if I ever get the opportunity to be able to pick his brain just on his obviously incredible career that he's had as as a major leaguer, uh, but also just again just being able to to have someone that thinks about hitting in a different light. Um, I get attracted to to different and uncommon. Uh, it'd be really cool to have that opportunity with him. And Daniel Murphy was, of course, part of the talk hitting series that that we do here. As were you. You did a talks hitting with us. Uh, I think it was February of 2020. So it was heading into your first season with the Royals. And as misfortune would have it, your first year was the COVID season. So that was not really a good way to jump in to learn and work with hitters. Yeah, it definitely uh, stressed and strained us in so many different ways as just, you know, so many people, obviously, just the, the horrid nature of, of COVID as it's ravaged, uh, you know, the world in a lot of ways, you know, really, uh, the thing that was, you know, maybe a byproduct is just it, it forced us to think differently. It forced us to be creative. It forced us to find different ways to be able to still do player development while we don't have that that one-on-one touch uh, and feel. And I think that our department and our organization did a tremendous job uh, being able to pour a lot of, of mental and sweat equity into our staff members and into our players just to be able to educate them you know, again, just thinking outside the box, I think that, you know, looking back at the downtime, even though that obviously it's under, you know, just such extremely, you know, terrible conditions, um, I think we did a really good job uh, of being able to, you know, optimize, innovate, uh, and update our department uh, and really prepare uh, all of our players and staff and support staff to be ready to be able to take down the 2021 season the way that we did. Was anything learned, Drew, from that summer of, of training, you know, uh, developing differently from the time that we spoke prior to the season? Like philosophically, is everything the same now as what you shared with me? Uh, it's it's a continual uh, evolution. You know, I I like to live by the rule 80-20. 80% of what we do, we should keep 20% of it we should get rid of. Uh, whether it's, you know, something that just flat out failed. Uh, or something that isn't as optimized the way we want it to. Uh, we we continue to evolve uh, and optimize our processes, and so yeah, I, I think that you know from the time that you and I talked, I think that you know the the, the structure, the skeleton is still there. We're always trying to find ways to be able to to keep ourselves ahead of the curve in in, in so many different ways. And uh, you know, for me, you know, again, looking at just what we've been able to to accomplish, you know, this year in 2021, we're already trying to think of ways to be able to optimize 22 and even 23 and 24. Um, you know, we're trying to create this almost, um, you know, iPhone operating system type of uh, mentality where, you know, it's we, we want our players and staff to feel excited when they come to our different camps, you know, where they're kind of thinking like, I can't think of you know, I can't wait to see what they're thinking of next. We, we want to have that type of mentality with all of our uh, players and staff members, and most especially with our organization. With the 20% in mind, can you give an example of something that you tried and then decided, you know, this really doesn't work well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, basic in terms of just some of the block training practices that, that we've had in the past. Not necessarily that we, we completely deleted just the 
the feel good BP. Uh, but it was something that as our players and staff evolved, um, our players wanted to do more challenge. They wanted to, you know, be um, in a competitive environment where the speeds and velocities are more reflective of what they're going to see in the games. And so um, I'd say that that's something that we definitely have almost deleted or omitted. And same thing with underhand uh, front toss. Uh, that's something that just our players, you know, they're, they're not really uh, fans of. And it's something that we've been able to kind of take out of just the Rolodex of what we're doing. And, and again, I think that it's small. It's probably you know, one of the more obvious things because I know other teams, probably majority of the teams are doing that. Uh, but it's something for us that we've been able to kind of take away and delete. And I think it's fair to say, Drew, that the Royals use tech a lot more than they did, I guess, before you came into the organization, that maybe the team isn't, quote unquote, you know, behind the curve as much as some fans may believe. Yeah, I, I think that's an accurate statement with where we're at. I think that, you know, we're, we're taking into account just the holistic nature of our players. You know, we're, we're in a very player centric model where we, we want to take into account all the different variables uh, of what makes our players them. And in our jobs as you know, teachers and stewards of, of their careers, we have to be able to take into account all that those different data points and be able to help you know, build out a, a really specific and, and granular process for each one of our players to be able to execute and then be able to then build that player, put them into the great cog of, of the affiliates and of our monitoring system and then be able to develop them. So, uh, yeah, very, very much so. Uh, we take into account all the different uh, pieces that are at our disposal. And we're obviously incredibly fortunate to have, you know, the support of, of our front office and our ownership group to be able to give us the, those tools to be able to do that more consistently, a little bit faster pace. And with players in mind, Bobby Witt Jr., is he a player that really needs development beyond just simply reps? Or is he a guy that basically you need to say, hey, stand in the box and hit ropes? <laughs> I think that that Bobby is one of those just naturally gifted players that God bestowed upon him at birth talent that he didn't give anybody else. I mean, he's definitely one of the elites of the elites. In some ways, yes. I mean, Bobby can go up there and, and just compete and be the best Bobby Wood Jr., um, as he said a number of times throughout this year. But I also think, too, Bobby is also aware of just the, the training environment that we create and then also just, you know, kind of his natural leadership skills where he's able to bestow a little bits and pieces of wisdom on our young players uh, to be able to, you know, you know, continue just to, to grow and develop our department. So, yeah, in, in some ways, Bobby does both. But he is definitely a guy that the game does come easier to him than everybody else. Uh, but that's not short-sighting. I mean, that he works incredibly hard at his craft. He's one of the, the guys that just, again, like when you think and you try to build a player in terms of just physical tools, mental tools, emotional EQ and IQ, like he, he is probably the, the player that you would build on MLB The Show. That, that's the type of special that we have with Bobby. MJ Melendez, unless I'm mistaken, led all minor league hitters in home runs. So we should definitely talk about what he brings to the table and just how close he is to doing that at the big league level. Yes, he did. He led all minor league baseballs in home runs. I'm not going to try off the cuff to be able to get the specific number. I think it was like uh, north of 40. MJ's close. One of the things that was really cool uh, to be able to see his evolution over the last two years is just how, you know, he learned some of the, the tech, the data, but more importantly, just the game planning and strategy components and really understanding pitch shape and trajectory. You know, again, he cleaned up a little bit of some of the directionality pieces. Uh, him and Mike Tosar did a really good job of that, uh, you know, during the off time down in Miami. 
Uh, but really, the, the thing that w- that MJ has done just an incredible job is just you know being able to understand the tools of intelligence and just how you can leverage those those little pieces of information on both sides of the ball. And and for me, it, it was just a really joyful process to be able to watch just the season that he put up this year. Again, another guy that works incredibly hard. You know, I don't I don't want to try to do the same superlative that I did with uh, with Bobby, but MJ is very much up there too. God bestowed upon him tools that he didn't bestow on anybody else, and, and now that he's learning how to be able to play with those tools consistently, uh, that's why he was able to turn in the season that he had this year. And Witt, of course, hit uh, 30 plus, maybe it was 33 or 34. Uh, Nick Prado, I believe, was right behind Melendez in home runs, you know, across the minors. I think it was 36. You know, what What about Nick? Yeah, I, I think he was tied with Griffin Conine, if I'm not mistaken with that. Uh, again, just a guy that, you know, coming into the organization, you know, obviously had a tough year in 2019. I mean, you know, him and MJ had tough 2019s. And you know, to be able to to just see those guys and, and be able to recall where they were at that point in time to see where they're at now. I mean, they're completely different human beings in, in so many ways and in a lot of great ways. Just their their intellectual curiosity is what stands out. And Nick is one of those guys that really uh, stands out above the rest with regard to that. Uh, he's one of the guys that is constantly, you know, seeking uh, knowledge and information. He's always talking uh, you know, development strategies with, with his teammates. I mean, honestly, he's probably one of the, the biggest ones in the organization in terms of championing uh, leadership, but also driving our uh, offensive initiatives uh, top to bottom. Uh, and Nick is a guy that pulls a lot of the young players under his wing and and teaches them, you know, the ropes, teaches them what he learned, and more, more importantly, just some of the pitfalls that he had uh, so far in his career. And, and for me, I think that, you know, looking at just his growth as a leader and all three of them, I think, uh, lead in so many different ways as well. Uh, you know, Nick is another guy that exemplifies, you know, what we expect out of our players uh, here in Kansas City. When we did the talks hitting interview in February 2020, you acknowledged that the Royals organization favors contact over power. When we look at what these guys we just spoke about did in the minor leagues, Maybe the philosophy hasn't changed, but has the org done anything maybe with swing changes or approach changes with these guys to develop more power? Yeah, the, the answer is all the above. I mean, it, you know, some guys it was, you know, mechanical tweaks and changes. Some guys it was approach changes. Some guys it was, you know, getting into the weight room uh, with John Waggle and Jared Abel and their team. Some of it is also getting with Ryan Maid and, and Melissa Lambert with their team with the behavioral sciences components. Really, again, I, I can't necessarily center on like one thing that allowed our department to be able to, I think, maintain our contact skills, but be able to leverage uh, and increase the power output that we had. I think that, again, we just we, we made it a point to take that initiative that every one of our players is different. We need to also act accordingly when we build out our player plans with them. And, and again, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of collaboration across departments. Uh, but again, it, it's one of those ones I think that everyone is trying to replicate in the game. I mean, there's teams that have been doing this now for years. But most especially, I, I think that we just got a really good group of staff members and hitting coaches uh, and support staff members here that love the collaboration, love to communicate. And, and that's what I think has allowed us to be able to have, you know, as an organization, uh, the year that we had in the minor leagues offensively. Did either Melendez or Prado make specific adjustments? Yeah, I mean, if you go back and you look at MJ, he cleaned up his, his shoulder line and direction. He's not over-rotating, you know, with, with his shoulders. He's being able to hold that direction a lot more. Uh, Nick, you know, found a way to be able to consolidate his hip slide 
uh, would probably be the the cue that people will talk about with him. Both guys were able to make some of those small adjustments, but really a lot of the leverage was done uh, with all the different uh, departments. You know, just the the general increase of functional strength that they made, uh, them understanding just you know how the opposition you know throws pitches, the movement profiles of them, uh, but more importantly how those guys also took when teams just were not giving them much to hit. Which again, I you know, big tip of the cap to our you know, behavioral sciences and to our hitting coaches because they help you know foster them and and navigate those very tricky waters, you know where they weren't just focused on just the results. So um, I think that there's a lot of things that went into those guys' uh, quote unquote production changes. Um, it's very difficult just to point to one. And with contact in mind, uh, Sayuli Matias has been a, a very fascinating player. I know that a few seasons ago, he had more home runs than singles in the low minors. And he was just in the fall stars game. I saw him strike out a few times. I saw him hit a a long fly ball. Does he have what it takes to make that, you know, the steps necessary to become a a viable big leaguer? I know that's a a tough question. No, it's a fair one. I think that if you look at just the skill set that Seule brings to the table, it's, it's incredible. I mean, you got a guy that has, you know, I'd be bold and say it's 80-grade raw power. You have a guy that has a, you know, 70, almost 80 arm. You have a guy that runs at, at, a, at almost a 70 clip. Like, it's a guy that has, you know, three really crazy good weapons that are there. I do think that he has, you know, the skill set to obviously be a, a very good, uh, you know, major leaguer. I think that, again, like he's, you know, continuing to learn more about himself, learn how all these different variables come into play. Uh, to get him as prepared and as ready to go and, and play in, in baseball games. And he's also going you know, to continue to make a couple small little tweaks and adjustments as he's going forward. He's working on, you know, being able to, you know, be able to get the whole swing timed up and ready to go. And, and we've been able to see some really uh, small, you know, visual improvements with that in, in the Fall Stars. I think that some of the production's also been there as well. You know, the swing and miss is down. Um, and, I, and again, I think that, you know, as he continues to go, you know, through the rest of uh, the AFL and he goes into the offseason, uh, I know that he has a, a, a very good plan in place uh, to continue to show those small incremental gains. And, and I'm excited for him. Um, I think that this is a guy that is, is continuing to mature. He's learning himself. He's learning the game. And uh, again, I, I'm excited. I think that, you know, a lot of people are going to be surprised, I think, at the end of the day with regard to what Sully brings to the table. I just spent a week down at Arizona Fall League Games, and the one uh, Royals prospect that I spoke to was uh, Nathan Eaton, who is not nearly as high profile as the Wits, Prados, Melendezes, and maybe not even as well known as Matias. But very promising season this year. You know, what can you tell us about, about Eaton? Oh, my gosh. It's, it's one of those ones that, as a, as a PD man, we talk a lot about it's not our job to to evaluate players, but it's to fully invest in them. And my goodness, I I love this guy. I I I think that he has a another level of grit and uh, and discipline. I think that just his baseball IQ and acumen is off the charts. I think that he's a guy that you're seeing him play shortstop. You're seeing him make some really elite plays on the on the hot corner as well. And you're seeing the the bat-to-ball skills really start to come into play with the quality of contact. And he really just understands himself. He puts together really, really good disciplined bats. Really, uh, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed being able to see Nate, you know, play uh, this year in the AFL. And again, him getting the, the nod to go to the Fall Stars game is, again, just another testament uh, to the work that he's been able to do. Uh, but he's a guy that, again, like, you just... 
he, he's that guy you see once, like, yeah, there's something there. And then you see another game of ours, you go, yeah, he's doing the same thing. And then you see it maybe like four, five, six, seven, eight more games. You're like, my gosh, like this guy is just every day just relentless in terms of what he brings to the table and the type of production that he has and the small little ways that he finds to be able to create wins uh, and marginal advantages for the team. And and again, that's not that's not even trying to undersell just his impact that he has in the clubhouse. I mean, he's a really good teammate. Again, just a guy that really uh, you know bonds well with all of his all of his uh, coaches and, and staff members. Like honestly, I I think David, like I could probably spend another twenty five minutes talking about just how much I love Nate Eaton. But again, it, I, I think to be able to have a little bit of brevity with it, I, I think he's just that that throwback, just a true grit baseball guy uh, that you're going to look up, you know, probably at the end of his career and go, man, I can't believe that guy got, you know, X amount of years in the big leagues. Like that, that's the type of player that Nate Eden is. Yeah, and we are starting to run out of time, but we definitely should hit on a few more players. Kyle Isbell made his major league debut this season. He was not somebody who was especially prominent on my radar when, when he did get the call up. Ah uh, man, it, what what an incredible year for Izzy! You know, being able to break in the big leagues, hit his first home run off of Sergio Romo, uh, and again a guy that plays really great defense. And I think a lot of people don't realize that he played short or uh, second base when he was in college. So for him to be able to make that transition and be able to play a solid, you know, center field, left and right, in in, in the spacious uh, confines that are Kauffman Stadium, I, I'm just. I'm I'm in all the guy. The the guy is again a throwback guy, very similar to to Nate Eaton, uh, very business like with how he goes about uh, his day. His work is is uh, impeccable. Just again, a, a guy that I just absolutely love. Uh, I th- I'm I'm really excited to be able to see what you know 2022 brings for him. He's continued to get better. The quality of contact is continuing to improve. Again, just guy that puts up just great at bats across the board. He's a winner. Yeah, Nick Lofton was I believe a competitive balance pick a year ago. Yeah, wow. What a great first year for Nick. I mean, making that jump to high A and being able to produce at the level that he did and, and be able to play a multitude of different positions. Uh, guy is just awesome. Um, another guy that I absolutely love. Bat to ball skills, quality content. He just, he, he's, he's a guy that, you know, and, and he's actually recently engaged. But my daughter, when she grows up, when she becomes 40, like if she brought home someone <laughs> of the character of Nick Lofton, I would be like, hey, I'm, I'm I'm all in. Go ahead and marry him. We're all good. Everybody else is a no, but Nick Lofton is a definite yes. But again, just the, the character, um, the leadership skills he brings to the table, the guy is just phenomenal. Um, a guy that I would tell anybody that follows Fangrass. So you can see a lot of the periphery stats that he brings to the table like he's a guy that's going to continue to hit and hit well and grow into maybe some more power as he continues to move up and learn himself and get stronger yeah when your daughter turns uh 40 you said drew i have a 25 year old and i think 30 is maybe more of a reasonable ballpark (laughs) hey i'm fine with that i'll on your recommendation i'll move it down to 30 yeah, fair enough. A few years ago, and I believe he's only 18 years old now, uh, I think it was two years ago, somebody told me about Eric Pena. It's possible that it was you, but I had never heard of Eric Pena. You know, I'm not uh, Eric Longenhagen. I don't know the 16-year-old internationals. But Eric Pena maybe has gotten off to a bit of a slow start statistically, but my understanding is that his tools are off the charts good. Absolutely. You know, and I think that, you know, it's not to, you know, miss, but I mean, he still was a very young 
player in the ACL this year. You know, learning the ropes, uh, and again, just a guy that just had a little bit of disjointed nature just with regard to to COVID and, and the shutdown. Uh, but again, absolutely love the guy. The tools are very much still there. Like he can play center, he can run the ball down. Uh, it has really good, you know, bat speed, life to you know how he goes about uh, you know playing the game and just the. Just again, he's he's the complete package, and it was me. I, I was the guy that said I really like this Eric Pena kid. I really think that he's going to be something, and, and I, I'm not backing off of that. If anything, I'm going to, you know, stand uh, pat with that. I think that he uh, brings so much to the table uh, with regard to what he can do and just his impact moving forward. He's just a young kid that is continuing to learn and continue to grow, and and I'm really excited to be able to see. You know, how he shows up, you know, this upcoming uh, season in 2022. And with, uh, you know, the fact in mind that you did mention to him a few years ago, give us a name of somebody that you really like in the org, you know, maybe your sleeper pick. And I know that being a coordinator, these guys are like your children. You don't want to just pick one. But who do listeners maybe not really know who you think has a nice future? Two, and they're, they're kind of mid-upper level guys. One is Vinny Pasquintino, who I know kind of broke on in the scene and, I mean, had an incredible year. Um, if you just go look through just the triple slash line, but also just the periphery stats, tremendous year. Uh, but also Michael Massey. I know he just got them winning a gold glove last week, I think it was, or maybe at the beginning of this week um, in the minor leagues. But again, just a really good, uh, tremendous offensive output season for him. I think he had a really good year. You know, uh, looking at Carter Jensen's another guy, too, that we took in the draft this year. Really love uh, the bat speed, the power that's there. And again, just, you know, the, the way that, you know, his he's evolving and, and the way that he goes about his work, I think he's another guy that I'd probably direct people's attention to. And actually, Daryl Collins would be another guy that was in Columbia uh, last year. A uh, guy from the Netherlands, really, really liked him, played at 18 in low way, and especially just because with, you know, minor consolidation, the souped up uh, arms they saw, really love the way that he went out and produced. But I think th- those would be guys that I'd probably, you know, tell people to keep an eye on. Yeah. So final question, Drew, you worked in a couple of organizations before coming to Kansas City. So when you look at the talent you saw there and the talent you're seeing now, just how excited should Royals fans be in the pipeline? They should be very excited. We're we're gonna have a really you know impactful wave that's gonna be hitting our major league team. You know we're obviously hoping that you know it, it's sooner rather than later, uh, but just more of the back building and just being able to have guys lined up behind them just to continue to you know give uh, you know Dayton JJ and company um, as many you know assets and weapons and, and Mike Matheny our our manager giving them as many weapons and and winning caliber players as humanly possible to go out there and and compete and it is it's going to be a very exciting time and. You know, Dayton uh, expressed the vision of, of we're going to, you know, have sustained winning. And I think that we're definitely well on our way to be able to do that, especially with how much um, our Milek system and our staff members and, and scouts and, and everyone that's poured, uh, you know, blood, sweat and tears into this organization. Uh, really, really um, an exciting time to be a role moving forward. And you definitely sound excited, Drew, as you should. I'm sure you're not too excited with looking forward to the winter in Ohio before you, we all go to spring training, but... It's home for you, and uh, hey, it, time goes by very quickly. I think we will all be in the sunshine starting a new baseball season uh, before we know it. Absolutely. Well, for me, I, I'm I'm all for like like snow two feet. Let's get a white Christmas here, and then January one, let's have seventy five and sun, and let's think baseball. That sounds perfect, Drew Sailor. Thank you again for coming on to uh, Fangrass Audio, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. 
Hello, welcome to Fangraphs Audio. My name is Jason Martinez, and I'm here with Eric Longenhagen, who is joining me from Tempe, Arizona. I just came from Tempe, Arizona, along with with uh, the rest of the Fangraphs crew. We all we all went to see Eric. Uh, we all went to see a lot of really good baseball. Three games at uh, Arizona Fall League, including the All Star Game. It was a lot of fun. It was good seeing you, Eric. How's it going over there? It's good. Yeah, it was great to have folks in town to hang out and get everyone from the site together again for the first time in like two plus years, I guess. Like it has been about that long since we've all gotten to see one another and to do the fall league where it was mostly outside and not the same experience at like winter meetings or spring training would be from a uh, like person to person density standpoint was nice and safe for everyone involved or as safe as it could be, you know, for everyone to get on a plane and then be in the house in the yard. But it was great. Yeah. So starting to get things going again here with the the back end of Fall League and you and I wanted to hop on the pod and talk about what was going on this week in, in terms of some of the, the lesser known baseball transactions. This Friday is the 40 man roster deadline by which teams need to have added all of their minor leaguers to the 40 man or not. And if not, then many of them are exposed to the rule five. So as certain teams have more or less depth than other teams in the minor leagues or on their 40 man roster right now, they're looking to move pieces or acquire pieces to put on that 40 man roster or so that they don't lose anyone for nothing via the the rule five. And there's been some trade rumors going on this week and tell the folks how they can use some of the tools on the site to look at some of this stuff for themselves, Jason. Yeah. So today is is Wednesday. And if you're listening to this, you could listen to this as early as Friday morning, I believe. And I think the deadline's probably in the afternoon. So there could be even a bunch more transactions between between now and then. So you'll start seeing these little moves here, here and there. Good reference to start with on any of the roster resource pages. So if you go to Fangraphs, you go to that roster resource drop down. Anything you click on, you'll see a list of tabs at the top of the page. Depth charts, payroll, off-season tracker, injury report, closer depth chart, in-season tools. And then you'll see breakdowns. So if you click on breakdowns, then there's another, there's a couple options there. You can click on 40-man roster. And then you can sort that 40-man roster. So this is going to give you a good idea of, of, of which teams could have a, a roster crunch right now. Just ba- I mean, just go, just starting the offseason. There are one, two, three, four, five teams with full 40-man rosters right now. Arizona, Detroit, uh, the Angels, Marlins, Yankees. They can't make a move right now until, unless they clear a 40-man spot. So Angels just signed Noah Syndergaard, and they DFA'd Junior Guerra to make that official. The Rays made a couple of minor trades, like they, they traded. These are players who have helped their team. Mike Michael Brasso traded to Milwaukee, clears one 40-man spot. Lewis Head, who was optioned and recalled like 20 times last year, but was, but was really good. good. They traded him to the Marlins. And then today, uh, sounds like they're going to release Dietrich Enns, who again, another guy who's been around forever, but goes goes to the Rays, and he's pretty effective in the times that they use him. He's going to be released to sign uh, with a team overseas. So, boom, three spots right there. And we're going to see be seeing a lot of that going on. But just on that page, you can see the A's have... 12 open spots right now. Shouldn't have, shouldn't be stressing too much right now between now and Friday as far as, you know, how many, how many spots you have to open. And then from here, you, you, you click on one of the depth charts. And again, you'll see the 40, the 40 man info at the top. You see the 40 man total. And then there's a column mid page. It says options for major league players. And as you go down to the minor league section, it says options or R5 status. 
So if you see, uh, if it says R5, those players are eligible for this year's Rule 5 draft. Uh, and there are some cases where it will just show options remaining for a player that's not on the 40-man roster. So that, that background of that player's name is white. And so the options don't matter. That player is not on the 40-man roster. And so they, they are Rule 5 eligible. You know, not many of those guys will get will get picked up, but it, it happens that they are drafted in the Rule 5 draft. So they are eligible. So it's, you know, it's a good way to kind of quickly just scroll down and go, okay, these guys have to be protected. This guy's obvious, obviously going to be added to the 40-man. Um, but then, you know, there's certain teams, w- which we'll discuss right now, which have a lot of interesting guys to add and not that many spots, which is how you end up after this Friday, a whole bunch of fun, interesting analysis on who are going to be the top picks in the Rule 5 draft? Who's the next Akil Badu? Who's the next Garrett Whitlock? You know, Tyler Wells. You got a couple yep. pretty good a couple pretty good success stories this year. Yeah, I think um as the more progressive thinking teams when it comes to building a farm system, once those those front offices have been entrenched for a while, they tend to prioritize depth. You have Tampa Bay, you have Cleveland, you have Baltimore now who, when they're making a lot of trades, a lot of times they're getting back three or four pieces, especially early on in the rebuild, rather than just putting all their eggs in one basket. So like a great example of this is Baltimore trading Dylan Bundy for a bunch of guys who on the prospect list were in like the 35 plus tier, uh, recently drafted college pitchers who uh, were totally fine, had an interesting foundation that the Orioles wanted to develop on. Uh, Kyle Bradish, etc. So as teams do that over years and years, and you end up with like this overload of prospects who are coming due for the 40 man or not. And then what ends up happening is the team has to decide, they have to prioritize putting some of them on their own 40 man to be sure. And then also they, they can trade them to other teams. And it's happening in typically one of two ways. The first is you're trading two, three, maybe even four pieces for a pretty big time, young, big leaguer. So like Brian Reynolds' name came up ahead of the deadline. And then again, just being on the phone with folks the last week or so, he would seem to be a logical candidate for something like this, where if a team with an overage like Cleveland or Tampa Bay or Detroit or something like that wants to package several players for one premium, multi-year controlled, big leaguer, that Reynolds is like towards the top of a lot of those teams lists. Then the second type of trade that you have is the kick the can down the road type of trade. That's where, you know, a team like let's again, pick Tampa Bay might be dealing with someone who has a shortage, who, you know, only has like 31 guys on their 40 man right now who can take a bunch of the players who wouldn't make the Rays roster, which is very good, but they're probably big league quality players you know, if a rebuilding team wants to put them on their roster now uh, in exchange for a bunch of very young, like flyer type players that the Rays maybe like for a reason or two, they're not necessarily high probability big leaguers, but they're interesting young prospects for a certain reason to a team like the Rays or the Twins or whoever, then that will, you know, that player doesn't have to be put on the 40 man for another two or three years often. Uh, And you see like Cleveland did that with Francisco Lindor, where they basically got players who were all drafted within two years of when they made that trade. 
so that they have a little while yet for those guys to develop in the minors for them before they have to clog up a 40-man spot and force this type of decision-making. So uh, it's a thing like called roster equilibrium, or at least that's what I call it, where like teams are trying to find the talent is basically, the system's designed for the talent to sort of balance itself out a little bit throughout the the teams. And I think it does tend to work, especially as uh, the teams have uh, like become sensitive to this and, and made this a transactional priority and trend. So Jason, like who, you mentioned some of the teams who uh, have full or close to full 40 mans. Would you run through those again? Yeah. So the teams who, who are full right now, Diamondbacks, Tigers, Angels, Marlins, Yankees. So five teams are at 40 and then set, you know, probably half of the league, at least, at least 36, 37. So they have a little bit of flexibility there. And the Yankees tend to lose a couple guys every Rule 5 draft anyway. They are like pretty often losing a couple of pitchers in just about every Rule 5. I think they have the option to maybe pull Estevan Florial or maybe even Miguel Andujar off the 40. I'd be more inclined with Florial than Andujar just because like I don't think Florial is going to hit at all. And I think that we've kind of assess that now as an industry. So maybe they can create a spot by outriding Florial. And then other than that, they have a bunch of the pitchers who you would typically expect the Yankees to sort of have on their bubble and perhaps lose. Um, and that's sort of it. Andres Chaparro has been in the fall league and performing. He looks like a player who might be destined for like Asia. Maybe there's not really enough power to support first base, third base for Andres Chaparro. Although I do think he's pretty talented. Um, and then Oswaldo Cabrera and Josh Bro are the two maybe high pro- higher profile hitters. Josh Bro, low OBP catcher with power, really more of like catcher DH. Not enough there to supplant like Gary Sanchez and uh, Kyle Higashioka. Higashioka is a different version of the same player, better defender than Bro, but uh, produces pretty similarly on offense. Uh, and then Cabrera's switch hitting utility guy, who I know a bunch of teams like, but the Yankees are like pretty flush with young up the middle players around him. So I don't know if he's an obvious ad, but I do think he's in danger on the rule five. A bunch of the other teams in the AL East are fine. Like Toronto, Baltimore, and Boston are all, they all have plenty of space. They all have some interesting decision points to make. Boston in particular sent a lot of their decision point guys to the fall league. Jeter Downs, who had a terrible year, then rebounded in the fall. Uh, Christian Koss, who they got from Colorado in a small deal a couple of years ago, another utility and field type. Josh Winkowski, Andrew Politi, like a bunch of fringe reliever type guys they sent uh, here to Cole Cottom, catcher first base, DH, again, like really on the fringe of being able to catch, but has power. So I, I think that like most of the other teams in that division are have interesting decision points on some individual guys, but are going to be able to add whoever they really want to, except for Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay has had this problem just about every year that I can remember. They, this is just their methodology. They acquire a hugely deep farm system. Uh, is there anyone throughout the year, Jason, as you were moving guys through the depth charts on Tampa Bay who surprised you with their performance and how fast they were being promoted, especially if they didn't have any real, uh, like if they weren't on the raise list entering this year? Let's see who stood out this year. They, they always have a bunch of guys, more than anyone, more than any team. Rays and the Yankees are the two teams that, you know, when I when I go through the when I go through all the players at the end of the season, I go, oh, okay, I should add this guy, I should add this guy. There's like more than any team, those are the two teams I have to add players because they they weren't ranked, they weren't really on anybody's radar, and so yeah, it 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 makes sense that they're gonna they're gonna have this issue because you know I think this is a fun team 
to kind of look at and, and, and kind of let's, you know, maybe maybe get a little bit more in depth with their decisions here, right? So like I mentioned the three they already made. So they got three open 40-man spots and they right. probably have... So if you look at their 40-man roster right now, I'm going to just scroll down and I, I don't see... I don't I don't see any any more players where you go, oh yeah, that that guy's just gonna get DFA'd, you know. They they've already right. gotten rid of those guys. So like Chris Mazza um was outrighted, DJ Johnson, um, they DFA'd Adam Conley. Everybody else is interesting enough there where I go, like, yeah, that's not a that's not an obvious DFA right. candidate. So so even Jeffrey you know, Springs has three option yeah, years left. Like Yeah, that's value. I mean so have. so I think the other twenty nine teams Look at the Rays right now, and they go. Okay, they, they can they can take a look and, and and just do the math and go. We probably if we wanted Jeffrey Springs, you know that that's that's a, a valuable lefty arm who we can option up and down. Uh, we can probably get him for really cheap because they're going to need to to DFA somebody, right? right? Yeah, you probably you have like what you think you're, the bottom of the roster of the Rays looks like, and then if any of that represents an upgrade to you, maybe you can get that guy at a price that's lower than normal because they're motivated to clear space. Yeah. Now here's another interesting thing about the Rays. So they've already added uh, one one catcher to the forty man roster, Rene Pinto, who's now he's their third catcher, and he would have been a minor league. He, so free, yeah, they had agent. they had Adam early because he would have been a free agent. Big time year from Pinto in 2021. Yeah. yeah, so they have and they have two other catchers, probably um well both both played in double A this year. Fort Proctor, who's also can play some infields, play shortstop as well. I'm not sure if they see him as more of a catcher or shortstop, but he played more catcher in, in two thousand. He converted during the pandemic. To catcher or, or to catcher, yeah. Okay. He played the infield at Rice. So he's like catcher, second base, shortstop, third base you know, caught in Australia last off season. They really tried to give him a lot of work back there. He, yeah, he, I think he's pretty interesting. I think that he would be popped if he were rule five eligible. Yeah. And then Blake Hunt, who they got in the Snell trade, in the Snell trade and his former second round pick. Who's on the top 100. Yeah. And so you got, yeah, two, two good prospects there. And so if they add both of those guys, you got five catchers on the 40-man roster, which right. is, you know, I think the Brewers did that at, at some point last year. But, it, you know, I, I think teams look at that and they go, okay, are you really going to add five guys to, to your to your 40-man roster? So I think teams can see that situation. You go a little bit further down here. Jonathan Aranda in the in the infield group, another like 23-year-old, was barely on the last raised prospect list. He was just an honorable mention type guy. Split between high and double A in 2021. He hit, you know, like 340, 435, 45, like absolutely dominant performance. Old for the level guy who is like a squat bodied, limited defensively type guy, but like premium, premium performance seemingly out of nowhere. This is like a low strikeout rate guy in the low minors between 2016 and 2019, but no power. And then all of a sudden after the pandemic, there's like real, real power. So Jonathan Aranda is another one. They have a ton of outfielders in the upper minors. Yeah, who uh, performed. Who, who did well this year. And I think, so like out of everybody I have in AAA and AA, you only have, you know, aside from Josh Lowe, who's already on the 40 man, um, Cal Stevenson, you had ranked 52nd and nobody else ranked, but they all did pretty good. So like... So Cal Stevenson, Ruben Cardenas, Ryan Bolt, Grant Witherspoon, Jordan Kassar, Nico Holsizer, 
yeah, Michael Gigliotti. All, all, all real five eligible. Anybody interesting enough there that you think they would add? I mean, I think it's hard to add a position player on a real as a real five pick. You really have to, yeah. you know, so, so that, would you think they valued any one of those guys enough to add them? I don't think so. I think that none of them represents an obvious upgrade to what they already have on their 40 uh, and their active roster. Like Brett Phillips brings to the table a lot of what, you know, Michael Gigliotti does uh, and like Cal Stevenson. Some of these guys have carrying tools like Stevenson and Gigliotti can really run. Uh, Diego Infante is the one where I talked to a scout in the fall who saw him during the year and loved him, like thinks that his power output is seriously real. So maybe he's the only one who I think is at risk of getting popped in the rule five, but I'm not sure that you can add him. Yeah. He's younger. He's and he's 20. He's, on the younger he's, he's younger. He's a couple of years younger than those guys. And he only made, made it up to high a. So he's, yeah. So he would have obviously be more of a, a guy that teams see as, you know, high upside and maybe we can hide him a little bit, but yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask you the same question with some of these starting pitchers. So Tommy Romero, Tobias Myers, those are the two that are most likely to be added by a long shot, I think. Yeah. Okay. And then you got a couple more, uh, like uh, Caleb Sampin, Michael Mercado, Jacob Lopez. Mercado's the one of that group where he has the most profile because he was like one of the first picks in the second round back in 2017, a big framed Stanford commit who they bought away from going to school there. He had a TJ. His stuff was never very good as a pro. We're just sort of waiting for the body projection to actualize and for this guy to start throwing harder. Then in 2021, he had the best statistical season he's ever had. He sat about 93 all year. Secondary stuff because of the time away from baseball in 2019 and 2020, recovering from TJ and then the pandemic, like secondary stuff hasn't really had a chance to develop. So, but still like struck out 10 per nine at high A. He's a little bit more of a long shot. The the guy of the other Rays who are eligible, who maybe has the most long-term upside, but probably not an ad. Now, it it seems like every team has a ton of relievers. A ton of them are going to be available on on the Rule 5, as Rule 5 picks. You can protect most of them. But if you you were just to look at the Rays and go, all right, they have like 15 guys I have listed probably that that are eligible. Do one of them stand out as like, that guy has a big time arm? I mean, we just saw Carlos Garcia in the Arizona Fall League. I think he was like the only pitcher who had a one, two, three inning this whole game. And I was like, yeah, of course it's the the Rays guy. Anybody stand out to you there? I mean, they got, you know, as far as guys you had ranked last year, Joel Piguero, Tanner Dotson, and then Carlos Garcia as well. Dotson is the other, like he's another one with profile because he was a two-way guy in uh, in college who played center field and closed at Cal. He's another like, it's a big fastball and then that's kind of it. Like, has he really found a consistently plus breaking ball? No, not yet. So Foucher, who they got back to kind of sweeten and balance the Nelly Cruz deal from Minnesota because they, they tried to clear some of their logjam with that trade. Like they just sent two short-term rotation pieces to Minnesota in that deal for, you know, a couple of weeks of Nelly. And then they got this Calvin Foucher back who was like, you know, a plus-plus curveball who they're just trying to work with. Um, probably not. This is this is a pretty typical looking group of fringe relievers. Joel Piguero was one, he's an arm strength flyer type guy, probably not someone who they need to add. All right, so the, the other couple big teams in the American League, I think are Cleveland, who we've talked about on the pod before. Their 40-man sits right now, 36 guys on there at the moment. Lots of interesting names, too. Lot, they have right. I don't know, yeah. eight or nine that I'd look at and go, yeah, you, 
you should probably consider adding these guys. They had a couple in the fall league as well. Uh, Richie Palacios, who we saw. Uh, Jose Tena, who we saw. Jose Tena's 20.7 was leading the fall league and hitting for a while. Is like a pretty aggressive, free-swinging, contact-oriented middle infielder. Richie Palacios was a college infielder who had major shoulder surgery, missed several years, but has always hit. In college, he hit. In pro ball, he's hit. They've tried to experiment with him in the outfield because he can't really throw the ball to first base. Uh, Like, you know, I saw him very early during minor league spring training. He was really struggling to throw from third base to first base with any kind of accuracy. And then he's just been in the outfield since then. So, you know, some, I don't know, do you think some of the Cleveland outfielders who are currently on the active roster are maybe in danger of being outrighted? Brad Zimmer and uh, Oscar Mercado and guys like Harold Ramirez are like not, they haven't really panned out the way. Cleveland will have one of them too. Daniel Johnson's probably another one where, you know, at some point they might want to move on from some of these toolsy guys who haven't performed. Yeah. And it's been like that for a couple of years where it's just like they have a four or five or six guys. None of them really stand out above the other. And then when you look at the guys coming up behind them, kind of the same thing. You're like, yeah, I don't really see an obvious, you know, guy who's just going to come up and just jump right in or jump over these guys. You got to get, you know, George Valera's probably probably another year or two away but he is an ad for this offseason though right? yeah yeah and they'll and so he's one of those guys that yeah top 100 guy yeah you got you got to add him because you know whether, whether a team thinks he's he's going to be overwhelmed or not yeah you steal a, a top 100 prospect if, if, if he's available so yeah 36 spots right now definite ads in valera brian rocchio and tyler freeman who are all top 100 prospects and then the the interesting fringe is Tena Palacios, Jose Fermin, who's also like, you know, no power, but plays all over the infield and has great like feel for contact. Jan Kenzie Noel, who's only, he's even younger than Tena. He's 20.3, has some of the biggest exit velos of anyone in the minors back in 2019, put up big exit velos again this year as a 20-year-old, but really doesn't have a position. He's a fascinating case. Aaron Bracho, who was at one point a big-time guy and really out of nowhere had a terrible 2021. Brian Lavastida, a converted junior college catcher, who you have anticipated on their bench, which I think is correct, even though he's not on the 40-man yet. At, at least for call. now. With, yeah, they don't have anybody else there. They, right. they got rid of all their backup catchers. And then Stephen Kwan, the little outfielder from Oregon State who has done nothing but rake in pro ball, slugged over 500 again in 2021, which is shocking considering like visually he has almost no power. He's 24. He, you know, they did not protect Kai Tom last year, who was similar in a lot of ways to Quan, and Tom got popped. So Stephen Quan, they did not send to Fall League, which was kind of curious uh, considering that he's 24, like Jose Tana's only 20. But um, Cleveland's fascinating too. I know from talking to sources on the phone this week, Cleveland has been trying to make like a three and four for one trade to get like a big fish, big league hitter since June. And like teams just won't do it. So they might end up having to make a kick the can down the road trade, which is dangerous for them because they already have a lot of guys from some of their recent draft classes and stuff. Like their future 40 man years are already chock full of dudes. So they would really like to make a consolidation trade, it feels. And I don't know, like they seem to be struggling to find a partner to do that with. Who else? Is there anybody in the uh, in the AL West that stands out to you as maybe having like, you know, someone where a rebuilding team wants to pilfer some of these guys from or 
has an overage. Well, like Oakland has 12, 12 open spots. Uh, so, so not Plenty really of space yeah. to make big rebuilding trades. Chapman Olson, we mentioned that uh, Ben and I did last on the last time. Yeah. They the, can be a place to dump some of the, some of your guys, I guess. Yeah. Rangers have four open spots right now. Yeah. But you know, I, I think, I think they'd be fine. I mean, they got to add, you know, somebody like Ezekiel Duran, yep. Ricky Venasco's an interesting guy. Look good in the instructs start of his that I caught. So he's a probable ad, I would guess based on that look. Yeah, and then the Angels have a full forty-man roster. So, like, let me let's take a quick look at their. I'm gonna take a quick look at their at their minor leaguers right now. See if there's anybody interesting. What do you think of, of Michael Stefanik? Who it was? I oh mean, that guy. That guy put up huge numbers. Non-drafted free agent, 25 years old. You know, they out of all the guys they called up this year, they never never gave him a look. But Rule Five eligible. Seems like he can hit. What yeah. Do you know, what do you know about him? I for sure have seen Michael Stefanik play. I don't have any notes on this guy. He definitely has feel for contact, inarguably as one of the lower swinging strike rates in the minors from last year, uh, just a 13.5% strikeout rate. Had 16 bombs at AAA Salt Lake, which is a hitter's haven. Uh, that's much, much more than he's ever hit in the past, ever, ever, ever. Three, three is his previous career home run high. So... Looking at the data, at least with Stefanik, there's really not power here. This guy's max exit velo in 2021 was just 102, you know, which is like a 30 grade. But inarguably, he has good feel for contact and he can kind of play the middle infield. So I do think he's an interesting sleeper who I know less about than is ideal at this stage. Yeah. And, and yeah, if, if you don't pair that with like, okay, he's a really, really good defender, he's got some speed. I mean, if there's no power there, I mean, it's it's hard to to look at that guy and go, okay, that's that guy seems really interesting. You know, it's not a huge surprise that he's been ignored so far. But I mean, it was it, looking at his numbers throughout the year, it was like, dang, this is this yeah. guy's raking. Call him up. I mean, the Angels, who who's blocking this guy? You know, so they have a few a few interesting pitchers: <laughs> Aaron Hernandez, Robinson Pena. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe one of those. Yeah. Yeah, Pina, I just saw Pina yesterday uh, in the fall league for the second time. He's been like 93, 96 with a good changeup and a below average like slider cutter thing. Um, he's been developed as a starter to this point. I think that he is just a reliever. They might consider moving on from Hector Jan. Uh, Hector Jan had a gigantic 2019. He's got like delivery wise, he looks like a left-handed Freddie Peralta. And then his velo really regressed. And even though he was their futures game representative this year, he's really sort of fallen. Uh, so Hector Jan is, is maybe a candidate for them to move on from and, and outright in deference to either Aaron Hernandez or Robinson Pena. Hernandez's velocity has never really arrived. Jose Salvador, the lefty who they got from Cincinnati and man, well, maybe that was part of the Racel Iglesias trade. I'm not sure, but he's like a lefty with a good curveball who uh, has also been developed as a starter and lives in the low 90s as a starter. You hope that in in relief, Jose Salvador's fastball ticks up a little bit. And then you have, you know, a pretty traditional looking lefty bullpen piece there. Orlando Martinez, the Cuban outfielder, he's going on 24. Just a high probability, big leader, left-handed hitting corner outfielder with really good bat control. Not a, not a big, strong guy, just a short levered, you know, doubles power, feel for contact corner outfielder who... Um, 
I think, you know, is just a rock solid 40, but they don't have any space. And I don't know if a guy like this necessarily has value in trade because like most teams have someone like this kind of hanging around. Uh, so I'm interested to see what happens with uh, Orlando Martinez the rest of this week. Cause he has had a good fall and just has done nothing but hit during his, uh, his pro career. The Astros seemed like they could have a bit of a, a, a some some interesting um, decisions to make. So like just upper min- minor starting pro- starting pitching prospects, Sean Dubin, Johansi yep. Torres, Brett Conine, JP France was really good. Jonathan Bermudez, yeah, man, Bermudez, yeah. And so I mean, and they have two no two open spots. Could probably make a couple easy cases to get it down to like a couple easy DFA cases to get it down to thirty six. Um, but yeah, there's there's some interesting arms arms there. You yep. got a couple outfitters like you know Ronnie Dawson, Jeremy else? Pena. The shortstop's oh, yeah. a lock. He's he's a, he's he's the automatic. Yeah, Ronnie Dawson. I don't know. They've they, he's been passed over before. That's true. And jo- so you got uh, Joe Perez, former second round pick, possibly. Um, yep. I think that's. I think yeah, the the arms are definitely in that mix. Angel Macquari has been in the fall league. He's probably a no. RJ Froyer, the righty from Pitt, who's got like 28, 2900 RPMs on his breaking ball is probably also a no. From all the pitchers that they have collected, Houston has a lot of interesting cases. Um, I think you mentioned the guys who have the best stuff for sure in Conine, Dubin, and, and Torres. And then Bermudez has outpaced expectations, was really just seen as a pitchability org guy, but has struck out, you know, 10 per nine or more in both 2019 and 2021, which are his only two full seasons in pro ball. So the stuff I have on Bermudez, Torres, the other guys you mentioned are definitely just like reliever guys. Torres throws like more sliders than anything else because he has his command of it is better than his fastball command. Bermudez sitting 91 with a plus curveball and a fringe changeup is what I have in the uh, in the old notes for, for Jonathan Bermudez. So interesting left-handed guy, plus curveball and a lefty gives you a shot. All right, so in terms of the NL, as we just want to try to wrap things up here, um, you know, the Mets have plenty of space at just 33 spots on the 40-man. Atlanta signed Manny Pena that put them at 36 spots. The champs have, I don't know, I think they're pretty good to go. Trey Harris is a a righty bench bat type who I dig, like a corner outfielder with power who I wouldn't mind having come off the bench to, to face a lefty once in a while. Uh, Freddie Tarnock, the righty pitcher in the minors, he's, he's 23. He's got interesting arm strength. William Woods was in the fall league, another guy with big arm strength, but but nothing else really uh, probably stays off of the roster. So Atlanta's seems pretty safe. Um, Philly's interesting because Dombrowski is there and is the type of guy who wants to make a consolidation trade, like it's his birthright. But they're only at 32 spots on the 40-man, and their farm system's not very deep. So I doubt that something like that's going to come. Anybody else in the NL kind of standing out to you? Your your Padres are at 39 spots. Yeah, I mean, a couple, so a couple questions for you here. So they're at so they're at 39. I would say there's probably you know like Sean Anderson, James Norwood. Those probably DF uh, the next the next up for for being DFA'd. So let's say okay. you get it down to 37, and now yeah. So let's say. Yeah, so no other obvious DFA candidates. So we get down to 37, and so I don't know if they would have to add Brandon Valenzuela to the to the 40-man. Right. 21 He's years old, breakout candidate, but like you know how you know not that many good catching prospects in the game. So if you want to steal one of the better up-and-coming catching yeah. prospects, he could be available. 
really athletic switch hitter who performed, right? Like he's only 21. It's pretty tough to ask a guy like that to be on your active roster all year. So they might be able to sneak him through. Yeah. So you got a, a Eggy Rosario who, who's in the, in the Arizona Fall League. You know, and that might be a case of, you know, maybe the Padres, you know, they have to make a decision. Let's let's see this guy for a little bit more against some some really good competition. And then you got, uh, let's see, there's also so somebody like, uh, so like Aaron Leisher, lefty, who pitched well in double A this year. Um, he would be another starter. Um, and then you got two uh, two relievers that you had ranked in their, pro, in their top, um, well, Stephen Wilson, 20th ranked. Uh, yeah. last season and then Evan Miller 32nd rank so these are two relievers who they probably consider adding to the 40 man and also probably close enough to where they'd be taken in, in the rule five draft if a team liked him yeah 14 k's per nine for Stephen Wilson at AAA during the year uh, yeah. a guy who I really came on to when he was in uh, Lee Dong pitching with was he Escojito? I'm pretty sure he was Escojito two off seasons ago. Where yeah, it's like sit 93 and a half with above average movement and a, an above average slider. So pretty clean middle relief look for him. Uh, I think Mackenzie Gore has to be added this off season too. Yeah, yeah, he's the obvious one there. But yeah, Evan Miller and I think that's you've pegged it correctly that that is like the bubble. It's somewhere in the Steven Wilson, Evan Miller, Mason Fox area. Mason Fox's stuff backed up in 2021 had a, had a big 2020 fall or what am I thinking about 2019 anyway like it looked like uh you know fastball curveball lefty relief pieces stuff backed up on Mason Fox in 2021 so maybe he's left off at this point uh, the, the other interesting one in the Padres system is Efrain Contreras mm. who had Tommy John in I'm wondering now what his timeline is maybe he had it I think I saw him blow out in the fall of of 2020 yeah, just you know, advanced all. strike thrower guy who was suddenly throwing very hard in the fall of 2020, and I think he blew out in the start against the Dodgers that I was there for. But you know, given that what some teams did last year, where they took a bunch of injured pitching and left it on the IL, I, I would have to think that uh, Contreras is in the mix for like sleeper guys to get popped uh, in the Rule Five, just because you can stash a guy like that on the IL ultimately if he's still rehabbing. Yeah, he didn't uh -huh. he didn't he didn't pitch at all in 2021. So what you do is make sure that he's well, so you pick him and then you go this guy's going to be on the 60-day IL. He's going to we're going to clear the 40-man spot again in mid-February and then we'll kind of see how he progresses and you don't ever have to take him off that 40-man, but once you feel like we got a window to start that, I think it's a 90-day minimum for them to to for you to keep his rights so if you find that right time you can do it and like the the, the two guys the pirates did that with last year they already they already sent back one of them jose soriano and then luis oviedo is the other guy who pitched some in the in uh was very good but you know that's what you expect from a young guy who's not ready uh, but perfect situation for for these kind of guys who you know they're kind of kind of buried there and you know of course like you said he's He's uh, he's coming off Tommy John. Nobody was really paying attention to him, but yeah, these guys, these teams know that this guy's throwing really hard, and he has some some upside there. And I think to close out here, that the teams in the West, San Diego, L.A., and San Francisco, are the ones who, as some of these transactional pieces try to fit together, are most willing to take on dead money. Like San Francisco and the Dodgers are just positioned financially, and I guess the Mets fall into this category too. Where if something like if twisting the Rays arm by saying, oh, we'll pay all of Kevin Kiermeyer's contract or whatever gets them to do something that they otherwise wouldn't ordinarily do just on a baseball talent level. Like those are the teams I think are most likely to 
leverage that piece of their organizational uh, might. So, all right. Is there anything else you want to, you want to talk about or plug you got anything coming up that you've been working on? You want folks to check out before we split? No, I mean, this is going to be, this is a fun week, busy week. You know, a lot of these minor, minor deals getting done, a, a, probably a ton of stuff, you know, being, being discussed that, you know, is not going to be a big, interesting rumor, but a lot of this, the stuff that we've been talking about, teams are trying to, trying to figure out how to create space and how to fit all these guys um, and not lose the guys that they value. And so, um, yeah, the roster resource pages will be, will be updated as things happen hoping that uh, the offseason continues to be interesting and continues to progress without any interruptions. And then, yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, although I'll have plenty to do, uh, folks should be on the lookout for the prospect lists, which will be coming probably the week after Thanksgiving, just so we're not starting them on a, a short week. We'll have updated draft lists for the next three years. And then international players of note, the international amateurs who will be signing in January, in addition to a lot of the foreign, like Asian pro players who are of note for both this offseason and potentially for the next several offseasons. Uh, there are just some really good players in Japan and Korea who are interesting to think about where they fall on like the prospect continuum where Lee Jung-Hoo fits compared to like J.J. Bladé, etc. So some of that will be on there. And then we'll get going with the team lists. Angels, A's, Cubs, and Brewers will be the first batch of teams. So folks should be on the lookout for those after Turkey Day. For Jason Martinez, thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. I've been Eric Longenhagen. See you next time. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Drew Saylor for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoy the program, consider recommending it to a friend. It helps us out. And consider subscribing to the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up with everything we have going on at the site. Have a good weekend, and we'll catch you next week.